Philippians chapter 1 this morning. And what we're going to do is have a little introduction to the book of Galatians. Galatians is an interesting book because basically Paul is writing kind of a a hard-hitting message to the churches in Galatia. And so this morning we're just going to introduce the book because we want to get to the heart of why he wrote the book. Um, But before we get there, I'd like to show you a couple of slides about the area of Galatia. Here we have basically Asia Minor, Turkey, and some of the surrounding areas. Ephesus is over here on the far left. On the left of your screen, you'll see the Aegean Sea, and to the left of that is Greece. So you might know where Greece is a little bit more than Asia Minor. Nobody really calls it Asia Minor anymore. But then over here, we've got Israel, what used to be Israel, and then you have Cyprus, and you've got Cilicia, you've got Tarsus, and so all these areas. But if you go to the next slide, it's the same region, but it's a little bit more of a a drawn map than a, a nice map. But what I wanted to point out is when Paul was called out on his first missionary journey, he was at Antioch. He had just been saved. Uh, He was there fellowshipping. He was serving in the church. And there was a group of men who had been fasting and praying. They wanted to send people out to plant churches in places that the gospel had never gone. And as they were praying and as they were fasting, there was two people by the name of Paul and Barnabas who were there at Antioch. And the Lord spoke to the men who were praying and said, Separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And so Paul and Barnabas were, had been there. They'd been searching, serving in the church. They had been faithful. And so there they are in Antioch, and the Lord says, I want you to go. I've called you. I've chosen you to be vessels to take the gospel to people who have never heard it before. And so they were like, okay, you know, he's the Lord, so who are we to tell him no? God gives you a direction. You go in it. And as a result of that, Paul goes on his very first missionary journey. He travels all the way across to Cyprus here, this island. He shares the gospel. If you read in uh, the book of Acts, you get the kind of what happened, how they had uh, hard times, actually, and it was very difficult. And then they travel up here to Pamphylia, and then Antioch, not this Antioch of Syria, but Antioch of a place called Pisidia, which was another region. And then they travel to Iconium, Lystra, and Derb, or Derby, however you want to say it. But my point is, is all four of those churches are churches in the region of Galatia. Now think about it. We have cities, we have counties, and then we have states, right? And those are larger areas. So this is a a continent that they're attached to, but then there's regions of the Roman Empire at the time. So here Paul is, he's just being faithful, he's going where the Lord sends him, And as he has provisions, he shows up in these four towns, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 13 through 15. But Paul shares the gospel there. And as he shares the gospel there, there are people who are saved, individuals who come into a relationship with Jesus. They receive his forgiveness, and they receive his grace. And as a result of that, there are churches planted in those areas. And as those churches are planted, God's sets up leadership for those churches through Paul. He trains up disciples, and then he goes on to the next town. And as he goes on to the next town, he's got other places where he plants the churches. But when he leaves, there are individuals who sneak in after him, and they start to say, well, you know, I don't know that Paul is really an apostle. Well, he, they, they're using the term apostle just like we would 
for um, the 12 apostles that Jesus invested in and then he sent to share the gospel. But there's another sense of the term apostle that actually is to mean someone who has been given a message and is sent a messenger. So we are in a, a sense, in a wider sense, apostles. We've, been, we've received the gospel, we're being taught how to walk in the gospel as disciples, and then we are given a message to share with other people who do not know Jesus. But in this sense, they're saying that he is not a chosen or a called man of God to share the gospel. He's not inspired by God. He's not got any authority from God. He's just some guy coming in and teaching you something that's not really true, is what they were saying about Paul. And so Paul comes in and he writes this letter to all those churches, the churches of Galatia, not just one church, but to this region, and he has some very difficult things to say to them, but first and foremost, he deals with this thing that they're teaching, that they're saying, Paul's not an apostle. And so he begins the letter in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, Paul, an apostle. <laughs> Paul, an apostle. He's writing, he's explained to them who he is that's writing the letter. And then in mine, it says, Paul, an apostle. And then it says, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me. So in these New Testament letters, they were written on scrolls. They didn't write letters like we do where we would sign at the end saying this was written by so-and-so. They would write it at the beginning because if you don't know who's writing to you, it's kind of confusing the context. And so they would write it at the beginning so you'd go right away and say, okay, Paul wrote this to me. So Paul explains, and he says, I'm an apostle. And then he says this, and this is the most important part. He says, I am an apostle. I've been called to be an apostle, not by men or through man. In other words, people did not tell me, hey, you're an apostle now. Go and share the gospel. He's saying, my authority does not come from man. My authority comes from God. He says, but through Jesus Christ personally, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He says, my authority, the, the, the reason that I'm doing what I do is because Jesus Christ has told me to do it. And he says, my authority comes from Jesus, and it comes from God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. So in 1 Corinthians 15, that's exactly what it says. It says that the gospel is in vain, it's not true, Unless, of course, the person who died for our sins was authenticated and proven to be the Son of God. If Jesus died for our sins and then he was not raised from the dead, then he's not God. He's just some other guy that came along and said, hey, I'm God, and then died. And many men have done that in the past. But Paul says, my authority comes from Jesus and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. So then he says, and all the brethren who are with me. So Paul is greeting them, but he's also greeting them with all the brethren, the believers there who are with him where he's writing from. He says, to the churches of Galatia. So I showed you on the map the churches that he's writing to. Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derb. He's writing to these specific churches. There is a specific audience. It's not just vague now, what I will say is many times people read that and they go, well, why are we studying this letter? Because 
it's not written to us. It's written to the churches in Galatia. Well, anything that is true, that's been written or inspired by God, is useful for us as well. There are things that we can draw from it. And so that's why we study these letters, even though they weren't written to, to the church of A.V. Chapel. You know, but you could very easily say, hey, this was written to God's church. And so there are things we can draw from it. So he begins in verse 3 by saying, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts by using what we call the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Grace and peace. Now there are a couple of reasons why he starts with this greeting in all of his letters. Well, first of all, it's the gospel. We cannot experience the peace of God until we first receive the grace of God. Grace is just that. Grace means God's favor, even though we don't deserve it. God's undeserved favor. We do not deserve God to forgive us. He doesn't have an obligation to forgive us of our sins against him. He never had to. Why he does, I think we'll spend eternity trying to find out. But for the joy that was set before him, Jesus suffered the cross, despising the shame, so that we could have eternal life. And so the grace of God says, even though we sinned against God, even though we commit trespasses against him, God in his mercy said, you know what? I want them to be saved. God treats us like Jesus deserved to be treated because Jesus was treated by him the way that we deserve to be treated. Does that make sense? God treated Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated so that we can be treated by him the way that Jesus deserves to be treated. That's tremendous. I, I wouldn't do that for anyone for my, with my son. It, it's kind of love that just causes you to go, wow, I can't believe he's done that. And so Paul says here, grace to you. And that word is actually a Greek word, charis, and it's a common greeting in that day where if you met a Greek person along the road, they would say to you, charis, charis, grace to you. And in the same way, the Jewish believer, the Jewish person at all, they would walk up to you and they would say shalom, which means peace in Hebrew. So he's speaking to the crowd as if there is a mixed multitude. There are those who are Gentiles. And there are those who are Jews. He says grace and peace. But grace is given to us so that we can have the peace of God. And so we cannot have peace with God until we've first received his grace. And then it says there, after saying grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might, here's the reason, Deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you ever want to know why God has given us his grace, here's the answer. Plain and simple, he says, he gave himself for our sins, and that should cause you to go, why? Why would he do that? And then it says, that he might deliver us. Lucy and I are reading this uh, it's called a storybook Bible. And every time it talks about Jesus in the Old Testament, it calls him the rescuer, calls him the deliverer. Jesus came to deliver us from sin, from the power of sin, and from the slavery that it gives us. 
When you sin, it, it's enticing. It's pleasurable for a season is what the Bible says. And then as you continue to sin, it becomes easier. And then as you continue to sin, before you know it, you can't stop because you've been put in bondage. You've been put in slavery by this thing that you've gotten used to doing. And so what Paul says here is that God sent his son who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God. It was God's will for Jesus to stand up to take the punishment for our sins upon himself so that we might be delivered from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So if we are sinners and we cannot do anything to, to stop sinning and God gives us the power to stop sinning and he also gives us forgiveness for all the sins we've already committed and the ones that we will commit, he offers forgiveness again. Then when we are set free from sin, when we are delivered through this life into an eternity, spending it with him, who did it? Was it me? Or was it Jesus? And that's the point he's making. I can't stop sinning on my own. But because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, he gives me the power to say no to sin and yes to him. And so as a result of that, Paul, really what he's saying in these first couple of verses, verse 3 through 5, is grace to you and peace from God the Father who gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us so that we might give glory to God. Who did it? It was all him. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's done everything. He's paid the price for our sins. He's, he's lived a life that we could not. And because of that, he deserves all the glory. Well, here's the thing. He says there in verse 6, I marvel. Have you ever marveled at something? What does it mean to marvel? You look at something and you're just in awe. You ever see like a brand new pickup? You ever see a, a brand new like movie or something and you're just marveling at it? You're looking and you're going, wow, how did somebody spend all the time to do all those graphics? How did somebody come up with that design for that vehicle? That thing is beautiful. I mean, maybe you guys haven't, but I, I see some of the new cars come out and I'm like, that is amazing. There's one, uh, the, the uh, Chrysler, uh, the Dodge Charger and the Challenger, they built this car, it's called the Hellcat edition. And it's got a motor in there, it's a Hemi, but it has 707 horsepower. This is a car that comes off the line with 700 horsepower. 700. It's got a supercharger, it's got turbos, it's got all these extra coolers on it because it's going to overheat. But they give you a 100,000 mile powertrain warranty on this thing. Now most cars you put 700 horsepower in, just by idling, they're going to tear themselves up because there's so much horsepower. It's just rumbling. But they give a warranty on it. So I marvel at that. I look at that and I go, 700 horsepower, stock. You don't have to bolt anything on. I'm just a car guy, so that's something I get excited about, obviously. But he says there, he says, I marvel. Paul is in awe. He's astonished at something. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. 
says, you guys have been saved from your sins by God himself. And I'm in awe. I'm astonished. I marvel at the fact that you would turn away from someone who would do such a thing for you. He said, which is not, he says, I marvel that you've turned away from the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What does that mean to pervert somebody? That word gets used a lot. We've heard of people, we, we would call them perverts. You know, that's, that gets used. At least it was when I was in school. But what does that mean to pervert something? Well, that word pervert means to twist. It means to bend it, to make it something that it's actually not supposed to be. You know, think about the things that you would call perverted. Most of them are not bad things, except somebody's taken something, a God-given gift, and twisted it to make it something that's sinful. And so in the same way, he says, they, they trouble you and they pervert the gospel of Christ. They, they take what was once a gift from God and they twist it and they make it something that actually, instead of, becomes, instead of becoming something that frees us, it burdens us. He says, I, I marvel that you've turned away from the gospel of the grace of Christ. He'll use that word grace way, like a whole bunch of times in this book, even though it's six chapters. And he'll use it because what these people have come in after Paul and said is they said, hey, look, yeah, it's good that you're saved and that you have a relationship with God. That's great. And it's good that Jesus has paid for your sins, but that's not all. You see, on top of what Jesus has done for you, you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved. And these people, the commentators and the people of that day called them Judaizers. And these Judaizers would come in and they would say, Jesus is not enough to save you from your sins. Jesus isn't enough. What you also need to do is you need to be circumcised. Now, this is something that the Jews historically did as part of their relationship with God. God said, people will know that you're my people because you will be circumcised. Now, I don't know how they would know that, Apparently, these Jewish people would boast about it. But what he said was, basically, that's going to that's gonna set you apart from all the other nations. You're going to be mine. Well, that outward sign was supposed to show that there was an inward change. So these Judaizers would say, it's good that you trust Jesus, but you also need to um, wear the right clothes, or you need to worship the way that we worship, or you need to um, be baptized a certain way. And, and we have that going on today. People will say, hey, it's good that you trust Jesus, but you need to make sure you do X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, you're not really saved. Whether it's something like, and these are, won't necessarily be bad things. You need to read your Bible exactly three times a day. You need to pray exactly 14 times a day. You need to go to church every week without fail. Otherwise, you're not saved. But here's the problem with that. Jesus paid it all. He is everything that we need. Those things aren't bad things, but they don't save us. Baptism is an act of obedience that we do to identify with Christ. But if we do it because we think that that's something that makes us more saved than somebody else, then it's vain. It's it's pointless. It doesn't save us. The thief on the cross was up there and he said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. There's no chapter about him going down off the cross and getting baptized in order to be saved. 
And so my point is, these people, they come in and they say, it's good that you trust Jesus, but here's some other things that you need to do, otherwise you can't be saved. Steve, will you get me the next slide, please? Here's what they do. This is a little comic I found. (laughs) This is what they were telling the Galatians. You're saved from your sins by keeping these rules. And you see the people that are following this guy, they've got a big burden on their back. They've got a bunch of rocks strapped down. And they're all the rules that they feel like they need to keep in order to remain saved. The problem is, is that there's no joy in that. If you have to earn your salvation by everything that you do, all of a sudden it becomes a burden that you were never meant to bear. And so here's the deal with legalism. Legalism is just that. And we can do this. It's a very subtle thing. It's something that we can taste, touch, feel. It's something where we feel like, hey, if I do these things, then I know I'm still in the right standing with God. And they'll be good things. And so um, what happens is that, unfortunately, your salvation becomes dependent upon your performance. You know, and we think about that because maybe you get a review at work or you do tests at school. Everything's dependent upon how you perform, and that's how you get your grades or your, your uh, wage increase at work, right? It's dependent upon your work, how you perform in a test. But with salvation, it's not like that. Jesus has paid it all. He does it all. He saves us. He washes us. He cleanses us. The work that he started in us, he's faithful to complete it. When we get outside of the bounds of where we need to be, he brings us back in. He disciplines every son whom he receives. He's the one that does it all. He gives us the faith to believe in it in the first place. It's not meant to be a burden. It's meant to be a blessing. And so the problem with legalism is, is that it's easy to get caught up in, and the next thing you know is that you're robbed of your joy because some days you'll get up on time and you'll have your time with the Lord, or you'll pray with your family, or you'll do whatever you feel like is the thing you're supposed to do as a Christian. But there will be some days where you'll have a bad day, and you'll start to question and doubt whether or not God still loves you because you didn't do X, Y, and Z. But the reality, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't love us less when we don't perform as well. No doubt it grieves him when we don't spend as much time with him, but he loves us just the same. Jesus' payment for our sins is just as good. It's just as received by God. And so it was never meant to be a burden to be saved. It's meant to free us. It's through freedom that God sent us free. And so he says there, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You're turning away and you're starting to feel like you have to do all these rules, which this is not a gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news. If someone comes along and says, hey, God saved you, but you need to do X, Y, and Z, and you got to do it every day, otherwise you're not saved. Is that good news? That's horrible news. I already got tons of stuff to do. This is no longer a gift. This is now a burden. I can't keep it up, and it makes you want to quit. And so he says, this is another gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But here's what he says in verse 8. He says, even if we, speaking of Paul and those who are with him, Barnabas, Timothy, all those guys, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. That word there means to be eternally separated from God. And to be quite frank, the word, the literal translation says, let him be, the person who spreads this false gospel, let him be damned. So he uses very strong words. Verse 10, he says, For do I now persuade men, or do I persuade God? Do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So he says here, Anybody who would come along and preach to you any other gospel, let him be accursed. Let, him, let God deal with them, is what he's saying. But let me ask you this. What is the gospel? Where's a place where we could actually say, what is the gospel that Paul preached? The point is, is that the gospel that Paul preached was not something that Paul came up with. It wasn't something he was like, you know what? I think I'm going to come up with something to tell people so that they can feel, like, feel better about themselves. And so I want to go to a spot where it actually lays out exactly what Paul preached, the gospel that he preached. And now that we're out of Corinthians, let's go back to Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Because there we have what Paul would present as the gospel. Just so there's not any confusion about what I mean when I say the gospel, the good news that Jesus has given us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. This is a message that they not only heard, but they received it. They accepted it and, and they applied it to their life. And this is now what's giving them faith to, to carry on. Verse 2, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul says the gospel is not something that's for everyone else but me. He says this is something I had to first receive myself and believe by faith. See, that's the thing about people who preach the gospel. If they're not ones who have received the message and have received forgiveness of the sins themselves, then they're really missing one of the main points. God saved you personally. It's not about everyone else. But once you receive that gift, you want to tell others about it. He says, I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. I'm also a partaker of this same gift. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Number one, Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's what he was calling Peter, then by the twelve apostles. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part, at the time that he wrote this, remain to the present. In other words, they're still alive. If you, if you don't believe me, go talk to those 500 people that have also seen him. But some have fallen asleep. In other, in other words, they've passed on. Verse 7 after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Paul says, 
I also saw the risen, the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The gospel causes us to have a proper perspective on who we are without Jesus saving us. And when he says that, he says, I am the least of the apostles. He's not just putting on airs and acting humble. He's saying literally, I don't deserve to be sent by God with this message because I used to persecute Christians. If you read the book of Acts, Paul, when he got saved, was a sinner, obviously, to everyone except himself. He was persecuting Christians. He would go to their homes. He, would, he had papers from the religious elite in Jerusalem to go out to people's houses to drag them out if they trusted in Jesus because he believed that Jesus was a false prophet. And he was shutting them down. He was telling them, if you believe in Jesus, I'm going to lock you in jail. And he even, in Acts chapter 6, consented to the killing of the first martyr in the church, Stephen. Stephen was preaching that Jesus was the Savior that God had sent to redeem Israel and all those who would come to faith and trust in him and have a relationship with God. And because of that, the religious people stoned him to death as a blasphemer. And Paul was there. He consented to it. He was breathing out violence against the church. He was against Jesus, not just against an organization. He was personally against Jesus Christ. And Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, and he blinded him for a time, and he spoke to him, and, and Paul said, who are you, Lord? And he explained to him, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Paul said famously, what do you want me to do? And Jesus told Paul, I want you to go on the street called Straight. I want you to meet up with this character by the name of Ananias, and he will tell you everything that I want to tell you. I'm going to use a person to speak to you, Paul. So Paul has a proper perspective on who he is without Jesus. He says, I'm the least of all apostles, and I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm forgiven. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Notice all the times he used the word grace. Paul says, I received the grace of God, and I'm saved. God's procured me. He's saved me. He's changed me. And his grace toward me was not in vain. There are many people who have heard the gospel. They've understood it mentally, but they've heard the grace of God, the forgiveness of sins, in vain because they've not let him forgive them. They've not received his grace and decided that they want to give their life to Jesus and stop following their own self. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. And then he says, as a result of that, I labored more hard than anyone else. But here's what he says. It's not I who labor, but the grace of God changing me and causing me, giving me a desire to serve the Lord. But the grace of God, which was with me, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. That's what he told the Corinthians, and that's what he's telling the people in Galatia. He says, look, this gospel of God's grace is not something you can earn. Grace is something that's free. You know? And there are people who say, well, that's too simple. 
You can't just be saved according to what God has done. And, and they don't realize what they're saying. They, they kind of put on this air like we've done something to deserve God's love. And Paul's saying you can't. Nobody deserves God's love. And so Paul gives us this message and he says, I, I don't persuade men. I don't persuade God. I don't seek to please men. For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I've decided to give my life to following whatever God gives me to do. So he's defending his apostleship, but he's also giving this message to them. Look, these people have come in after me and they've said, you can do anything. Uh, You have to do stuff to earn your salvation. And Paul says, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus alone is sufficient to save your soul. You know, and I heard somebody say this. They said, here's, here's the deal. Here's the question. When you get to heaven, when you get to, when, let's say this. When you get to see Jesus face to face after you pass on, what makes you deserve to be in heaven? You know, if they were to give you a quiz when you get to the pearly gates, everybody always talks about the pearly gates. I don't, I don't see that in scripture. But say you get there. And they say, okay, what, what makes you deserve to be in here? What would you answer? What would you answer? Because I have to say that there are many days where my answer would be, well, Lord, I, I read my Bible 15 minutes every day, faithfully, sometimes begrudgingly, but I did it every day. Or, um, you know, I... I gave my life to serve you. I moved my family. All these things that I kind of measure myself up by. And every time the Lord's like, you did that because I called you to, but that doesn't earn your salvation. You're mine. You're my child. You've been born again. That's why you're going to see the kingdom of God. You, because of what Jesus has done, that's the only reason we have to go in. Everything else is fruit from that. Everything else just proves that we trust in the Lord. But it's God's grace that gives us eternity in heaven with God. So he had said something in there that I just want to hit one more time. He says, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And, and I heard one guy say this. He said, Imagine this. We're sitting here, we're having our service, and all of a sudden an apparition, an angel like the Old Testament and the New, just pops into our, our church and is in our midst. And there's light, and there's beautiful music. And this angel just gets up there and, it, and starts to give this word and says, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, this is how you are saved and this is how you go to heaven. And we hadn't just studied this. I wonder how many people would be in churches, would see that beautiful apparition, and they'd go, you know what? I believe that. And they would start to do what that angel said. I confess to you, I might be a little tempted myself. I've never seen an angel. I've never seen a beautiful you know, display like that. But Paul says, even if that were to happen, he says, some of you would be, I marvel that some of you would actually believe it. You know, Whether it's somebody giving a testimony and they, they write a book about it, heaven is for real, or you know, whatever. Like, do we believe those things without checking what Scripture says first? That's what Paul's saying. Our our salvation is by grace through faith alone. In Galatians, right after Galatians, is a book called Ephesians chapter 2. It actually says in verse 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast about it, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If there's anything we can boast about at all, it's just that God has, through his grace, saved us, given us a purpose and a hope. He's given us things to do while we're saved on the way to heaven. But it's by his grace alone, through faith alone, it's not anything that we can do to add to it. And I just have to tell you that, you know, this, this book has really challenged me this week because in chapter 1 and 2, he talks about he's defending himself as an apostle. He says, I didn't choose myself. Uh, the apostles didn't choose me. It was God who chose me to be an apostle. But then in a couple of the other chapters, he talks about the doctrine that comes from knowing that God is the one that saved us, no, nothing that we can add to it. And then in the last couple of chapters, he gives us practical ways to live out what we've learned in this book. And I say that this has rocked my world because I, I love when people start coming to church. I love when they start walking with the Lord. But when I see things that, are, in my opinion, are things that I believe might even prove that they're not saved, I start to judge them inwardly in my mind. And I start to think, hey, how can they, they can't do that and be saved. They can't vote for so-and-so and be a Christian. Maybe you've heard that recently, you know. Or they can't do this and be a Christian. They can't do this. And they can't wear that, you know. And, and I even wore this shirt on purpose this morning because there are many churches, maybe some of you kind of recoil. I'm wearing a T-shirt, first of all. And I'm wearing a, a, a Marvel comic shirt. I think it's Marvel. You know, Captain America. A pastor can't wear a comic book shirt while he's teaching the Bible. And there's part of me that thinks that way too. We, we kind of have these ideas of what it looks like to follow God and X, Y, and Z. You can't do any of those things. But those are works. Now, there are some things that we ought not to do because we might stumble our brother or sister and cause them to walk away from the faith. We might confuse them as to things that we should be doing as Christians. But me wearing a comic book shirt doesn't unsave me. You know, me even saying the wrong word at the wrong, you know, maybe you're someone who used to cuss all the time. I used to. And you slip up at work. Does that mean that you're not saved anymore? No. That just means that God's still working on you. Now, I don't think you should be happy about it when it happens. I think you should be convicted. But God's got to do all that stuff. We don't have to do that to each other. We need to just pray for and encourage one another. Not to lay a trip on somebody. Not to put a big old burden on people's backs that they were never meant to carry. God doesn't mean for us to go out there and say, hey, it's great that you're saved, but you need to be baptized. Have you been baptized underwater? You know, have you gone out to the lake like we do? Because that's how we do baptisms. You know, We don't have a big thing up here behind me, right? We don't have specific traditions yet. But there are some things that we do have that are kind of our own AV chapel traditions. And it would be very easy to go, hey, you know, the, the church down the street does it different than us. I wonder if they're even saved. We may not say that, but we might think it. And so we need to be set free from those ideas. You know, does it say in the Bible you can't wear jeans or gals? Does it say in the Bible that you can't wear pants? You know, I've been to churches before where gals can't wear pants. Is that in the scriptures? No. So we need to be careful about the hills that we die on. We need to love one another. We need to serve one another. We need to pray that God would have his, that he would mature us. And so I've kind of gone on and on, but there are so many things in my mind that we kind of make scripture 
and they're not. And there are so many things that God has said that we're not yet following. And so let me ask you this morning, where are you? You know, do you know what it is that God wants to definitely do in your life? And are you putting that on other people? God wants to set us free. And so if there's anything in your life that maybe you've started following instead of what God has said is good for you as his child, be free from it this morning. Um, So we're going to take communion. We've received the gospel. God's paid the price for our sins. He's given us his body as a payment. He's poured out his blood in order to cleanse us because it's the only pure blood that ever existed. And he saved us from an eternity of his wrath. And he's done it because he loves us. And he wants to get glory from our lives. And he wants to show what, it, what happens when somebody really gives their life to him. He wants to, um, to save others as well. So uh, let's pray. We're going to sing a song. I want you guys to come up and get the, uh, the elements. And then after we sing that song, uh, we'll, t- we'll take the elements and then we'll, we'll close with the song. But let's get back to what originally saved us in the first place. Let's get back to Jesus. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that salvation is so simple. We thank you that you are willing to continually remind us of your faithfulness and our failure so that we'll all the more have joy in our salvation. Lord, help us to go back to the beginning. Help us not to get caught up in what we think we add to our salvation because all of those things are in vain. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love. We pray that you would help us to proclaim the gospel, that you came to set those who are captive free, that you came to take the burdens off of those who are carrying heavy loads. You came to save us from ourselves. And because of that, Lord, all we can do in response is to worship you and thank you and to tell others about your amazing grace. So, Father, this morning we take communion. I thank you for the patience of these here, and I pray that as we take communion, Lord, that you would take us back to the basics, that you would remind us that salvation is something that you have done, that we can't add anything to, and that we just need to embrace it. Lord, when we read our Bibles, it's not about knowing more, it's not about earning favor or heavenly brownie points, but it's all about getting to know our Savior more, getting to know you. When we pray, it's not about... um, doing something that we have to do. It's something that we get to do because of our relationship with you. And when we come to church, it's not something we have to do. It's something that we get to do so we can be reminded in this hard, hard life that you are still on the throne, that you're still working, that you're faithful, that you want to redeem even the hard stuff. When you're not answering our prayers the way we want to, that that you are still a good God and that you're working everything together for the good of us who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, what is your purpose for us? Tell us, even in this quiet time, we get to spend with you. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for this time, and we pray, Lord, have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.